The book of Philippians, chapter 4, starting in verse 8. In this final chapter of Philippians, Paul is showing us what it looks like to stand firm. If you remember, the very first verse of this chapter, Paul tells us to stand firm thus in the Lord. And that thus is very pregnant with meaning. In other words, standing firm in the Lord is not standing still. There are postures, there are movements that we engage in as His people, as we walk with Him, as we stand firm in Him. You could call them perseverance postures. And over the weeks we've been looking at them, we called the first realignment, we called the second rejoicing, reasonableness, the third prayer against anxiety, if you were with us last week. And today we will look at our thought life. So let's take a look this morning. Again, chapter 4, verse 8. This is God's Word. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. Let's pray. Lord, would you speak for your servants are listening. Open the eyes of our hearts so that we would not just comprehend information, but by your spirit we would be transformed. We believe in the power of your word this morning. And Lord, I do too, as I'm preaching. Would you even transform me? Expose things in our hearts, in the depths of who we are. And restore and heal. And it's in Jesus' name we ask these things. Amen. I just spent four days alone. Not Josie and me alone. Me alone. (laughs) four days in northern Michigan last week. I had many people in my life, my wife included, my friends, my counselor, telling me I needed to practice the discipline of solitude and silence. I've learned that Dallas Willard used to call these the two most radical disciplines in the Christian life, solitude and silence. Now, I'm an introvert also. You know that by now. And so when Josie and I put it on the calendar (laughs) months in advance, it sounded like paradise. It sounded amazing. But I'm going to be honest, as it approached, I started to get more and more scared. I started to get more and more freaked out. Why? Because silence is scary, folks. It's scary. Because silence means I have to confront my thoughts. Because without distraction, I might encounter God. And who really wants to do that, right? I'm only half joking. Silence is scary. And it's always been scary. In the 17th century, the mathematician and the theologian, Blaise Pascal, said this, All of humanity's problems stem from man's inability to sit quietly in a room alone. And if that was true in the 17th century, how much more true is it in this age of distraction? 
Silence is scary. And I wonder if we, as a culture, I wonder if I, as your pastor, make peace with distraction because it means I don't have to make peace with my thoughts. Let me ask you, does your thought life intimidate you? Does it scare you? Does it discourage you? Maybe you decided to follow Jesus and you thought your toxic thoughts would just sort of immediately disappear. And you're discouraged because the more you follow Jesus, the more discouraged you are about your internal life. Let me just say before we get into our passage this morning that God says three, I think, liberating things about our thought life in his word. The first is this, that God knows your thoughts. You might think that's not liberating, but let me explain. Let me explain. Hebrews 4.13 teaches us that no creature is hidden from his sight. And I'm quoting the author of Hebrews here. But all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. He knows your thoughts. Better than you do. The second thing is this. God loves you in your thoughts. That's, That's the comfort. He knows your thoughts, but he also loves you in your thoughts. In Psalm 139, a psalm that I would recommend you all meditate on and chew on. In Psalm 1, the psalmist describes um, meditating on God's word like a cow chewing on cud. I would recommend that you chew like a cow chews cud. Psalm 139. Be a great practice after this morning's sermon. Because David in it sings... Even before a word is on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Before I even say something, you know it, Lord. So he knows our thoughts. But the great theme of Psalm 139 is that God's knowledge is all-encompassing of all that you are, but so is his love. It's been said by many before me that We both, all of us long for two things. We want to be fully known, number one, and fully loved, number two. And in this broken world, with our broken relationships, we usually settle for one or the other. And only the Lord offers both in its fullness. God fully knows you. He knows your thoughts before you can even speak them. And yet, He accepts you. He is for you. In the language of Psalm 139, he actually says, I knew you in the womb. And that word knowledge, that word knowing is so much more intimate than the way that we use the word know. It is a love relationship. God has been for you since the foundations, since before the foundations of the world, says Paul in Ephesians. He has been for you. He knows you for knowledge. And so he knows your thoughts, and he loves you in your thoughts. If that's not liberating, I don't have anything else for you this morning. But there is a third thing. Scripture talks about God wanting to renew our thoughts. So he knows our thoughts, he loves us in our thoughts, and then he loves us so much that he longs to renew our thoughts. He doesn't just leave our thought life alone. We might think God only cares about our external life, our behavior. But the scriptures tell a different story. The scriptures say, no, God actually cares deeply about your internal life, your thoughts, your heart. 
The Bible talks about renewal and change as starting in our hearts and minds. Salvation, in other words, is getting a new heart. And a renewable mind. Isn't that great? Salvation is getting a new heart and a renewable mind. So that Paul can say in Romans 12 too, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but instead what? Be transformed. Be transformed. That's passive tense. That means somebody else is transforming you. Be transformed by what? The renewing of your mind. You have a new heart and a renewable mind. So God knows your thoughts. God loves you in your thoughts. And God loves you so much, He's going to renew your thoughts. So those are the three liberating truths about your thought life. As we set the stage for the passage that we're about to read this morning. In fact, it's not surprising that Paul spends a lot of time in our thought life in the book of Philippians. It just occurred to me in our study that much of Philippians could be boiled down to Paul asking this small house church in ancient Philippi, which is modern day Greece, this small house church. And Paul might be just saying, hey, have this mindset about you. This is what he's constantly saying. I think seven times in the letter of Philippians, he uses that word mindset. Have this mindset. Last week, we, if you were with us, we talked about how we can convert our anxious thoughts to Godward thoughts. Do you remember? We were talking about anxiety. Because Paul says in chapter 4, verse 6, well, after he says the Lord is at hand, which is a character statement about our God, he is near and present. Paul says, don't be anxious. Don't have anxious thoughts about anything, but then in everything, by prayer and with thanksgiving. Let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and what else? Your minds in Christ Jesus. Paul is concerned deeply about our thought life, isn't he? So many of his promises in this letter are directed towards our minds. Our thinking. In this passage this morning that we read and focus that we're going to be focusing on this morning is connected to what we heard last week. He says, fix your thoughts in verse eight. The very end of verse 8. Do you see it? He has a list. Whatever's true, honorable, and so on. Then he says, think about these things. Or you could translate it, fix your mind on these things. Or fix your thoughts on these things. Or one's translation says, let your mind continue to dwell on these things. When I asked a counselor friend of mine about anxiety, she told me how important it is to connect the anxious, anxious mind To truth. To true thoughts. About God's world and God's word. God's reality. And that is what Paul is doing this morning for us. So what does Paul tell us about our thoughts? Two important things this morning. Number one, what we think about matters. And number two, who we think about matters. Let's look at each in turn. 
what we think about matters. So much so that Paul makes a list of things to dwell on with your mind. It is six categories. Anything that is true, take a look in verse 8. Anything that is honorable, anything that is just, anything that is pure, anything that is lovely, anything that is commendable. And then he summarizes these six things with two words. Excellent things and things worthy of praise. So we are called to dwell on excellent and praiseworthy things. And so let's take a, just briefly, a closer look at those six words. What do each of these words mean? First thing he says is, think on true things. We should dwell, in other words, on God's truth. I think Paul starts here because Jesus tells us in the Gospel of John... Chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan, who hates Christians growing and trusting and surrendering all to Jesus, is the father of all lies. If you think about it, all of Satan's tactics, really, are against truth. And you see the seed form of all of it in the very first chapters of Genesis, especially Genesis chapter 3. In the very beginning with our parents, Adam and Eve, he set the pattern. He distorts the content of God's word in that chapter and the character of God's word. He not only says, hey, I don't think it says what it really says, but he also says, I think the person behind the words, God himself, is not good. The character of his word, not just the content. And to this day, this will continue to be his assault on us. Sometimes we feel something is true, but according to God, it isn't. Sometimes we thought things were true, but they turn out to be untrue, especially as we study the scriptures. And this is why we need relationships. This is why we encourage home groups. This is why church and coming to church and having relationships in the church are so important. So we can have others who can point us to the truth. Counselors, friends, home groups saying, I, I, I just don't know. Let's, let's read the scriptures together. The theologian Lynn Kohick, she talks about the time when she was suffering the loss of her sister from cancer. And how this verse, of all verses that she could have gone to for comfort, this was the verse. And in particular, this was the phrase that brought her most comfort. She recounts how she would say, after her untimely death, whatever is true, Len, whatever is true, whatever is true, whatever is true, whatever is true. And she would say it over and over and over again and would bring her peace because what she was doing is she was dwelling on whatever is true, especially the truth of resurrection against her despair, the lie of despair. So the truth of resurrection, whatever is true, whatever is true. And I encourage you to do the same. Whatever is true. Think on these things. It's a battle, but it's a good battle. Paul says, think on honorable things, moving down the list. The word here is simnos, which is used in the New Testament six other times. 
in reference particularly to people. People can be honorable. And teaching can be honorable. Apparently in Titus chapter 2, verse 7, this word describes a pastor's teaching. My pastor should, I'm sorry, my teaching as your pastor should show forth dignity or honor. So you get the idea that Paul is encouraging us to dwell not on vulgar and base things, but honorable things. Things with dignity. Gravitas. He goes on, he says, think on just things. The word here could also be translated right. Think on right things. One of my favorite books I recently read is by Michael Sandel, and it's called Justice. What is the right thing to do? He's a philosopher at Harvard, and he has a famous first-year class on justice. And in it, he simplifies the word justice to the word rightness. And he asks his students to consider what is the right thing to do. So dwelling on just things or right things, according to Paul here, is to always be pondering that question, I think. What is the right thing to do? We're not pondering what is the most efficient thing to do, which often my thoughts go to, right? What about yours? We're not thinking, all right, what is the most popular thing to do? Amen? Who's in school right now still? That is a question you will be thinking constantly. What is the popular thing to do? What is the most efficient thing to do? Paul's saying, ponder this question. What is the right thing to do? And not just horizontally, but vertically. So we can ask the question in relationship to God. God, what is the right thing to do? But we also must ask the right thing to do with our relationships. In our relationship to neighbor, specifically our neighbor, the neighbors that we have who have names that we know. But then also just generally, the prophet Amos, he talks about rightness in his, in his letter. He says, listen to this, you who rob the poor and trample down the needy. You can't wait for the Sabbath day to be over. This is a very religious group he's talking to. You can't wait for wor- Sunday worship to break. Of course, it would be Saturday worship in their case. And you can't wait for the religious festivals to end so that you can get back to cheating the helpless. Rightness is important. Thinking what is the right thing to do. Justice. Think on those. And then he goes on. He says, think on pure things. John says in 1 John 3, Jesus was pure. In 1 Timothy, purity is a requirement for church leadership. All of us, all Christians are called because Jesus is pure to pursue purity. And when we hear this word, we tend to reduce it and think only about purity of mind with regard to sexuality, which is very important. Pursue purity there. But it's way more expansive than that. Paul says, dwell on whatever is pure. He goes on. Dwell on or think on lovely things. Lovely things. You might be like, where is that? Oh, it's right there. Whatever is lovely. 
And I love this phrase, actually this word, because it's not on any of the ancient virtue lists. So virtue lists were very popular in the ancient culture. And many people, they read this and they're like, this is a virtue list, just like every other philosophy, every other worldly religion. Paul is just simply regurgitating a virtue list. But what's true is he uses some of the things that connect with God's world, but he also has unique things that he's calling us to. And this is one of them. Whatever is lovely. And you might think, what does that word mean? Right? That word is so vague. This might help. The word means love producing things. Some things draw the best out of you. They're love producing things. Henry Cloud, he says that leaders can lead a meeting so that everybody in that boardroom or everybody in that classroom or everybody wherever they're meeting leaves equipped, they leave heard, they leave inspired, they don't leave with an icky feeling. That is a lovely leader. That is lovely leadership. This person is drawing out the best in their people. And we are called to think on or to dwell on lovely things. Is your Twitter feed and your Instagram feed lovely? Honest question. Is the way that you use those things lovely? Or your Facebook feed, whatever it is. Is it drawing out the best in you? Honest question. Are the books and the movies and the television... Are they lovely? Are they love producing? I'll just say this. Without the discipline of abstinence, that is, willingly for a season, removing something that's in your life and taking it away from your life, we will never know, will we? It's worth considering. What am I dwelling on in my mind? What gets the lion's share of my thinking? Now we know that what comes out of a heart is what defiles us. So we can get really legalistic really quick when your preacher starts talking about what movies you watch. Okay? As if the movies defile us. No, sin resides in the heart. Okay? But we must take heed of what Paul is saying. He is saying dwell on lovely things. So, wrestle with that tension, will you? I am. And then finally, he says, think on commendable things, which are things that are winsome and not offensive. Now, the gospel has an inherent offense to it. There are some, when you say that um, that God is just and that sin is an affront to that, and that the only way of salvation is through Jesus and the path that he provides, there is an inherent offense to that. So we're not talking about that. Paul's not saying, don't, like, he's not saying, water down the gospel so you offend nobody with the gospel. That's not what he's saying. But we can be needlessly offensive, can we not? Like, all the time. (laughs) And what Paul is saying is, listen, dwell on things that will not alienate and offend needlessly. Commendable things. And all of these, to summarize, are excellent and worthy of praise. A few years ago, 
I started collecting cookbooks. Okay? Um, I, I would go online and I'd, I'd say, okay, what are the essential cookbooks? And I wanted a library of just like 10 of the most important cookbooks there are. And what I love about cookbooks are the list of ingredients. It's like alchemy. It's magic. You take these ingredients, these earthy ingredients, and from them come delicious things once you apply heat and time. And then I think even more profoundly, community as you share in that meal. This list of simple things creates beautiful things. And when I look at this virtue list, when I look at this list that Paul provides, I see a list or a recipe of, of, of delicious ingredients to feed on. I think of a list as a recipe for an amazing feast. Think about this. Paul could list a don't list. He could give us a don't list. He could say, don't dwell on false things. Don't dwell on vulgar things. Don't dwell on wrong things. Don't dwell on impure things. Don't dwell or think on gross things. And don't think on offensive things. He could have said that. But that ain't how a recipe works. Don't use gross stuff. This is a positive list. Because what Paul is describing is nourishment. It's a feast. Paul is asking us to give attention to what we constantly think on. This is not the power of positive thinking. Which says if you think positive thoughts, then things will go well for you. And that's not true. But what is true is that the habits of the mind are profoundly influential. And God gave you a renewable mind. And that changes you from the inside out. And that's a good thing. Briefly, let's think about the second thing that we get addressed with in this passage. And it's who we think about. Not just what we think about, but who we think about. Because Paul gets personal in the next verse. He encourages us to imitate excellency when we see it in others. What's he say? What you have learned and received, that's probably his teaching, Paul's teaching, and heard, including maybe his sermons, his teachings, what you've learned and received and heard and then and seen in me, he goes on. He gets way more personal, as if we think our thought life is abstract. He says, no, what you've even seen in me... Uh, He says, practice these things. Do these things. Literally, the word is do. Do these things. And the God of peace will be with you. And so, the things that the church learned and received and heard and saw in Paul, they are to to, uh, repeat or to practice in their own lives. If you take a look at chapter 3, verse 17, he talked like this prior to. He said, brothers, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So in other words, don't just dwell on excellent things. Dwell on excellent people. Paul tells the Corinthian church, he says, Be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Choose mentors. Choose heroes wisely. 
Mentors who remind you of and point you to Jesus. Can I say that again? Mentors, they can be younger than you or older than you or the same age as you. Choose mentors that remind you of and more importantly, point you to the Lord Jesus. I recently sent an email out to my friends, my pastor friends. Don't you want to be a fly on the wall with that email exchange? I sent an email uh, to them, and uh, I had a challenging pastoral question I wanted their input on, and I titled the email WWJD question mark. And what I meant by that was actually not what would Jesus do, but what would Jerem do? Because Jerem was a professor that we all had in seminary. Now, of course, I'm asking, what would Jesus do? Come on. But my point in the email was, and one of my strategies in my pastoral life always is to wonder how people I admire would handle situations that I encounter. I am liberated by this passage to do that. It is not wrong for you to do that and to think that way. There's a godly person in my life. I wonder how they would encounter this situation in my life and to draw encouragement and challenge from that. That's a good thing. Now, it can get carried away when you start idolizing them like a cult leader and only doing what they do and thinking what they think. That's terrible. Don't do that. And that's a danger. But it's also far dangerous to be on this side and to be like, I'm just a, you know, I'm just a lonely person in the Lord. I'm an island with the Lord, and I just need the Lord. No, you need people in your life. That's how God designed you. You're relational to the core of who you are. You need people to model Jesus to you. Think about parents and children. What is one of the most primary roles of a parent, if not what Paul is describing here? Who we think about matters, not just what. The internal life is of deep significance to God. And in this passage, I think we're all being called to dwell on excellent things and excellent people. Anything that is true. Anybody who embodies truth. Anything that is honorable. Anybody who is honorable. Anything that is just. Anybody who thinks, what is the right thing to do? And by God's grace, though not perfectly, does it. Anything that is pure, anybody who pursues purity in their life. Anything that is lovely or love-producing. Anybody who brings the best out of you. Anything that is commendable. Anybody who is not needlessly offensive. And it strikes me, as I do that, that this list is another way of describing Jesus. Not just the things he's done for us, but who he is. He is true. He is honorable. He is just. He is pure. He is lovely. He is commendable. 
And he is all of those things for you. Think on him. Think on him. Dwell continually on him. It's not just what, it's who you think on that renews your mind. For instance, before I went on this time alone, my wife Josie and I were able to pray with some friends. And one of them prayed that I would be able to rest with my father and my older brother, Jesus, in that silent cottage. And I have to tell you, I was walking in scared, I told you. That spirit-empowered prayer zapped that fear away. Because it reoriented me to not just the peace of God, which was promised to me in the previous verses, but the God of peace. Not just the peace of God, but the God of peace. Which is exactly what Paul promises you this morning at the very end of our passage. The God of peace. And so may you, as you think on Jesus, experience Jesus' peace. My peace I leave you. My peace I give to you. He says. He says it now to you. Let's pray. Lord, even now we convert our anxious thoughts to you in prayer. And we give them to you. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would meet us and give us your peace. And show up. Show up, God of peace, in our lives. We don't need propositions. We're a bunch of folks who are chock full of propositions. We need the person of Jesus. And we need his peace. Especially in our thoughts. Bring it, we ask. Amen.